So like I was saying, you know, how we validate training sessions will vary a little bit based on the athlete, like based on what, what their goal is. And then more importantly, like what they have available, are they in person, are they remote and what kind of tools we can use with them. Right. So a workout in and of itself is not good or bad. And that's one thing early on as a young coach, I was like, that's stupid. And then, you know, seeing workouts on paper without context, that's Every workout has an intent, like every workout has a, a principle behind it, or it should. And if done with the right athlete at the right time, like everything works, just some might work better or worse than others. So when I look at a training session, I give my athlete um, a, a stimulus or a dose of exercise. I'm looking for kind of a couple different changes, like an acute change, whether it's in tissue quality, um, fatigue, all these different things, a longer change, maybe on a, on a week level, and then obviously chronic or long-term changes in the athlete. So when I validate a training session, I try and blend data and subjective feedback, right? So if I just take an athlete's weight lifted, do their tonnage over the course of a week, whatever, you name it, um, objectively, that is good, but it's just one half of the puzzle. So if you tell me I snatched 265, relatively, that's pretty good, right? For a male athlete, 265, pretty good. I would be happy with that any day of the week. But if you tell me you snatched 265, your shoulders felt like they're about to rip out a socket. You had a wobbly catch, up on you know, up on your heels, all these other things. That's a different thing. That becomes a little bit more movement quality, less about horsepower and performance. So I take that in. If you tell me that you did, let's say gymnastic sets, like we'll use Lauren um, or Ashley, both of them have mental hangups on certain gymnastics movements, the cycling of them. It's not unconscious competence yet. So they breathe differently. So their ventilation pattern changes based on fear of a movement. And so those are things that I can't quite tell unless the athlete gives me that. I look at the numbers and I'm like, okay, you told me you had a crap training session today, but looking at the numbers, they're trending up. And so it's my job as the coach to balance the two. So, you know, the other thing we can do in-house that a lot of people don't have available um, is we can look at a lot of objective measures of performance that can take the athlete's bias out of it. Because if an athlete is telling me they're afraid of a movement or they don't like doing, like, I don't like cardio or whatever, I can give them something like we use in, in-house, the human monitor. It monitors real-time oxygen saturation of a muscle. So if you're telling me, oh, I'm blowing up on a workout and I'm looking at you and I'm like, ah, you're actually moving well, whatever. I can look and see if that's happening. Or I can see if it's a delivery problem. I can see if it's a, a, a uptake problem, like you're not breathing. I can see if it's a just utilization problem, right? So if you're doing wall balls and you're like, my legs blow up, I need to find out why. It could be the perception of blowing up, like muscular. It could be, yeah, he's getting an over influx of blood into that area, respiratory metabolism, uh, metabolo reflex, and you can't clear it. So you're over breathing, or you're telling me, under fatigue, I can't lift a certain amount of weight. Now we might have a delivery limitation. So I can use that. I think from an assessment standpoint, from us looking at it, I think the athletes oftentimes think that it's something other than, it's, than it is, right? Like, oh, my legs blow up in wall balls. I need to do a ton of wall balls to get better. It's like, well, if it is one of those things where your body can't clear the oversaturation of oxygen that your leg just got, Maybe doing some more aerobic work or more kind of interval hit stuff 
that with a full rest, you can work on clearing out lactate and over like CO2. So, and when we look at that from an objective standpoint with the human monitors, where it's like you flooded and decreased your oxygen saturation levels, we don't need to do any squat endurance stuff. But now instead let's work over here and the athlete's like, wow, that's stupid. I need to do wobble. It's like we have hard data metrics that are showing it. Because then when we go back to the wall balls, and now let's say you're doing 150 time, Karen, and your legs feel great, we can match the two. Before you were here at this oxygenation level in your legs, we did X. Now we come back, subjectively, you're telling me that you feel better, and your time, objectively, got a minute faster. Back to the chef approach. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, back to the chef approach. And a good example would be um, early on in my coaching career, like I was like, if someone had an issue, let's take Fran, thrusters and pull-ups. If someone's like, hey, my arms are blowing up in Fran or my legs are blowing, whatever it was in Fran, I'd be like, okay, well, we got to do more localized muscular work on the arms. We got to do more of that. Or we got to do more conditioning for your legs or we got to do whatever. Well, using these data devices like Humon or whatever else Moxie monitors are out there as well, I can slap it on. I can see what's, it's actually your perception is that you're blowing up, but it's actually, you're holding too much tension while you're on the opposing movement. That's why Fran is such a kick in the junk because it's a complete polar opposite of movements. And if your lactate shunt doesn't work, so if you do your 21 thrusters, you got a bunch of lactate building up in your quads. Your body's going to say, relax all the non-involved muscles right now, like your lats and your pulling muscles. Shunt the lactate there for right now. It's a short-term mechanism. And we'll clear it later. We'll get it out of the body later. But right now, the working muscles need to get rid of it. Well, then you go up to do pull-ups, and your muscles are like, okay, I've got a bunch of lactate here. Let me shift it back to my legs. So if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I'm blowing up, and it's my legs, and it's all this stuff, it may just be your ability to move lactate. You may be holding too much mechanical tension in your quads while you do pull-ups. You know, So we can look at a couple things where sometimes the athlete's perceived limiter is actually a compensation that we want to get rid of. Right. So they're like, oh, on cardio, you know, my my lungs blow up. Oh, my lungs hurt. Well, what we look at is while they're running and we slap a human on their upper arms, they're not perfusing. They are literally not getting oxygen in their upper arms because they got too much muscle mass or too much tension. So it's not the fact their lungs are blowing up. Their lungs and their heart, their left ventricle can't overcome just that systemic tension. So it's not a cardio problem. It's a tension problem. And so until we look at that and we say, okay, that's a true limiter versus that's a compensation, what it typically results in is back when I was a younger coach, I would apply more things to fix the compensation and make it worse. Oh, you need to do more cardio. Keep doing your strength stuff. Do more cardio. Yes and no. It doesn't transfer, right? Energy system stuff is movement specific. It's pattern specific. It's all these things. I didn't realize that. Until I started using some of these other things. This is why we're in a sweet spot with you when we talk about having you do body scans all the time. You're like, oh, I'm gaining a little bit of uh, body fat. I'm dropping a little bit of muscle mass. It's like not necessarily a bad thing for a dude that was clanking around 6% body fat at 240, right? Like decreasing your muscle mass, like you'll still be pretty strong, but now you're able to breathe way better. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think here's, a, here's an important thing too. When we use a lot of these, what are just called kind of, uh, you know, um, sorry, subjective models or subjective kind of uh, programming. So when we give the athlete a range, an RPE, a reps in reserve, 
the argument from some coaches is that's too variable. The athlete doesn't know, like their mental block is going to either limit them from performance or some days they'll overdo it. But I would say if you blend the two, right? If I give, if I gave Taylor cleans at a certain percentage and I say, Hey, I want you to hit, you know, 10 reps with a RPE of eight. Like you should have two reps left in the tank at the end or about an 80% effort level somewhere around there. And he just cranks them all out, touch and go, doesn't even stop, doesn't even like slow down. Maybe that's not the right percentage. And maybe I got that wrong. Or you perceive that as an eight, but it's not really an eight. So I blend that with something like a velocity-based device, right? Slap that on the barbell. If you drop below, let's say like 1.8 meters per second on your barbell, well, now I'm not getting the speed strength stimulus that I want. So I blend the two. And when you use a, like a theoretical based model, like in theory, you should hit this many reps. Like I'm guessing that if I validate it with something else objective, that's the sweet spot. That's the beauty of combining objective with subjective, the art and the science. Yeah. So, you know, one of the bigger things with the downfalls of kind of auto-regulated programming and some of these other things that aren't as pretty on Excel sheet is it's hard to balance predictability. Because some days I may tell you to hit a max effort set at 90%, you hit 20 reps. Well, maybe it's because it's 20 rep squat and you're a squatting god, right? But then I tell you to come hit a 20 rep max bench and your shoulders hurt and some other stuff go on and it's nowhere near my my numbers. Well, if I validate that or cross-validate that with a device like a velocity-based training tool or some other things, it just makes sure we're keeping checks and balances in there, not keeping it too open-ended, you know, cause some folks will take it that way. Like, no, that stuff doesn't matter. You're a human. Well, we got to validate it somehow. Yeah. So, you know, to touch on kind of a few things that were just mentioned, you talked about as an athlete, you know, they might be blowing up in their legs mm-hmm. and it might be that they hate wobbles and somehow from a mental perspective that either makes them afraid of the movement. So they hold more tension or, they, you know, they're biased in what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. So for me, visualizing things, I think is very important. So how can an athlete, A, use visualization to help improve themselves and maybe take some of those limiters away where, yeah, I hate to run. So what can I do from a, a visual, not visual management, but just visualization standpoint to, to maybe help improve my performance? And then B, eliminate that bias. But also, how do I respond as an athlete to help you all understand kind of what I'm going through? So what's the best way for me to communicate to you guys exactly what's going on with me as an athlete? Yeah, I have some, uh, some you know, longer distance athletes, things we're focusing on, uh, 50K races right now, some that are focusing on um, hundred mile races, some that are focusing on a race that's max, max distance in 24 hours, stuff like that. And so with them, um, it's obviously single modality. So you're like, Oh, it's just running, but there's a lot more to it than just running. So what I like from them is I'll give them an intent of the workout. Like, Hey, this is a speed workout. This is a volume workout. This is whatever. Um, but here's the, here's what I want you to report back to me, report, like the subjective feeling of the workout, how hard it felt report any friction points like I got blisters or I got whatever report any of those things and blend the two but then when we talk about visualization for race day and those things we focus on good like we focus on positive 
Because if you look at a lot of studies that even look at stress response and fear response, a fear response that can be seen in the face actually detracts from performance measures. So like people have a clenched jaw when they have those other things, it detracts from performance measures. So we tell people to relax things, get a mantra, get a, a three to five word saying that you can just put on repeat. And that will help with actually with kind of an anti-inflammatory response and a pain blocking response. So you can do those things. But for you doing a mixed modal sport, you may have things that you're scared of. So we have to layer in in your programming. First, we have to expose you to the movement at the right dose, the right time. So you don't get scared of it, right? So if it's, I'm scared of wall balls or I'm scared of running, what, at what, what rep range, (laughs) what speed, but whatever. If you're like, well, I don't mind wall balls in sets of 20, but if you told me to do a set of 150, okay, I might blow up. Well, now we're going to do sets of 15 to 20 and bump your fear threshold up, right? So now you're not using that mental bandwidth we talked about to be scared of the movement. And then as we get you experienced or exposed to that movement, a little bit more experience at the pain threshold, but not always tipping over. And then eventually you get to that expertise level. So it goes experience or exposure, experience, expertise. And when we talk to a lot of our athletes about like the competency hierarchy, it starts at the beginning, like unconscious incompetence. I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. A lot of times that creates fear that slows you down because your central governor is not going to let you outrun your headlights. It's a survival mechanism, right? So if I told you go run for 30 minutes and you've never done that before and you're scared of running, you're going to have a natural governor that slows you down. But if I teach you, okay, when we're running, so you get this unconscious or the conscious incompetence, like I know I don't like running. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And as a coach, I get rid of your problem points. And I tell you, you're, you've got lateral heel whip. You are holding too much tension in your upper body. Relax your arms. Those things, that bumps it up to this level of conscious competence. Okay, that felt pretty good. I'm not an expert yet, but I still need to build into that. And when I'm out running, I can self-correct, Yeah. right? And then the last thing is that unconscious competence, right? You don't have to think about it and you're at an expert level. That's flow state, right? That's the goal that we're trying to get into to make the athlete do that in competition. So I have to bump your threshold up the whole way. The whole time I'm giving you coaching feedback that creates that. And eventually you'll find a cue. Like when I used to Olympic weightlift, I had one cue that I would think of for snatch. I had one cue that I would think of for, um, for clean and jerk, specifically the jerk. But that would I would fire that one word right before that would help me. And that one word meant a series of things. Okay. So that can be the visualization thing. So when I would visualize my Olympic lift on the platform the night before, the couple days before, instead of thinking, wait on my heels, let me tighten my lats, do all these other things. things." (laughs) That's that's actually proven to slow you down. Right. So if you were intrinsically focused on a certain part of your body, that slows you down. And so me as a coach, if I'm telling you to run and I'm telling you to hold potato chips with your hands, well, now you're going to relax stuff like you're holding potato chips. If I'm telling you when you're sprinting to break the glass with your knee, now you're getting that violent leg drive without me saying, oh, flex your hip, extend your – there's no time for a that. Lot of, yeah. That's a lot yeah. of mistakes I see coaches make is during a max out session. And like the person that like 98%, they're like, oh, just pin this or do this differently. It's like, dude, they're so close to their max. Like that's a terrible time to teach that. Yeah. One of the things I use for a couple of my athletes that are doing triathlons, um, and then I start to bring this into the CrossFit realm as well. If I'm training someone for a triathlon, let's say we're building a good base on a bike, 
right? And they're like, hey, I want to gotta get faster on my bike and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, if your race is an hour long and I have you doing a three-hour kind of steady state ride, in that intent, I want to see you get comfortable with your gears, get your cadence down. We Triathlons are huge for using computers, so I have them screenshot computers with wattage output, heart rate. And you make a more intelligent athlete when we start talking about the, the pyramid of like kind of incompetence and whatnot. Because then what happens is they get in a race pace and they're like, hell, dude, I know when I'm going for three hours, I'm going to cruise at this heart rate and this wattage output and this cadence. Similar concept we talked about the other day when it comes to mixed modal work. I always I love it when athletes report back, oh, I got five rounds. I'm like, cool, what were you holding wattage-wise or cal per hour on the row? No idea. Don't like, even know what that means. Yep. Because yep. with experience. All of the watts. Yeah. yeah. With experience, what ends up happening is now you start storing all these workouts. Okay, I did a 10-minute workout. I was holding 1,000 cal per hour. All right, I was doing a 15-minute workout. I was holding 950. And now what ends up happening is you get into an unknown situation, such as a CrossFit workout, and you're like, Dude, and you jump on the rower and you're like, and you're like, man, a while ago I did a workout that was 10 minutes long. This workout's about 10 minutes long, and I was holding 1100 cal per hour. You immediately revert back to that. So you're not wasting bandwidth or scared of the workout because it's a competition workout. Mm-hmm. You can immediately kind of think about, hey, I did this five weeks ago, 10 minute workout, I was holding 1000 cal per hour. And so you start paying attention to that. It, Gets a lot of those fears out of the way. Well, so you say that, but at the same time, then you get on the competition floor and you realize, oh shit. And that's what makes it I, st- I still can't hold that because somebody is running away from yep. me. What do, how do you respond to that? That's it? what makes the difference between a great athlete and an average athlete. We talk about with some of our Wadapalooza girls. It's like, hey, we need two sets of 25 wall balls, 50 unbroken. It's like, yeah. all right, well, you blew up now. It's like, it It may seem, you look at Frakowski. Good friend. Good friend. Oh, God. <laughs> good, you know, but you see how he, <laughs> how, he does, how he does a lot of things, right? Like, he lets people kind of get out there, and then he just try and chases them down. Yeah. It's like, I use the example for everyone on the row. If the workout has a 1,000-meter row in it, and someone is rowing five seconds per 500 meter faster than me, that's a hard effort on the row, one. Absolutely. You only finished a 1,000-meter row 10 seconds before me. If you're going to tell me that if in 10 se- in the whole workout, whatever the work- rest of the workout is, that you can maintain that 10-second gap on me, you deserve to win because you don't have that capacity right now. Yeah. But nine times out of 10, we see it, they jump off the road 10 seconds behind, they're catching their breath, they're breathing really hard, and the guy that rode 10 seconds slower pops off, picks up the wall. Well, Alan's a good example of it. Yeah. Jumps on the pull-up bar and just starts, boom, busting them out. It's like – I think it's, you know, I think we got to <laughs> say – Training versus testing, yeah. competition versus training scenario two. You're right. In competition, like obviously we start with the principles of training we build with our athletes. You know, we try and build big picture things in there. As they get closer to the competition day, we talk strategy. Like as the workouts start yeah. to pop up for Wadapalooza, we would talk, hey, here's your strategy in the in the ones we can practice before we get there. Let's practice this strategy. Let's do these things. And then game day, we kind of give them some tactics. Like, okay. I want you to go out two sets of 25 on the wall balls. If you don't know, it's going to cost you right here and know you're going to have to make it up right here. Cause what's the old saying, you know, all plans are, are good until you get punched in the mouth or yeah, whatever. So yeah. And so that's the difference in training versus testing in training. I want them to know what they can hold. If they do a set of 30, 20, if they do a set of whatever in competition, I don't want to be the guy that holds them back if they're feeling it. If they hit that perfect time, perfect place, 
So when it, we're in competition, I get handrails, those tactics, like try this, try that, depending on how you're feeling. But yeah, it's a lot different when you see someone step off that rower ahead of you and you see someone step off that first movement ahead of you and you're like, oh, I got to pick it up. The experienced athletes will let it happen because they know it's a long race or they know where they can make their money because they know themselves. No one's making your rower go faster or slower but you. No one's making your barbell heavier or lighter but you. And how you approach your strategy and play your game, that's why the best ones, regardless of the workout that they're doing, they look relaxed at the right time. They look like they're going hard at the right time for them. I think that's something that, that I'm starting to to understand and learn a little bit better. Obviously, I'm not anywhere close to like the chef approach, but when I first started, you know, competing at Survival of the Fittest, I was an athlete who I love going dark. So like instantly I'm on the rower and I'm pulling so hard that I feel like my lungs are bleeding. And that's three minutes of a 25 minute workout. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I'm coming off, and I'm going, oh yeah, I'm in first place. And then I finished the competition and I'm not only hurt, I'm injured, you know, I'm dead. I can't breathe on the ground. Yeah, I got time cap for the workout. So it's just one of those things that now I start to understand, okay, you know, I've experienced something like this before. I know that this is not working. So I have to trust A, my coach, and have to trust B, the, the process that's in front of me. And not only the fact that I'm confident in, in what my what my goals are for that workout and what you know my plan is for that workout, but also the fact that I need to make sure I stick to what I'm capable of because regardless if I win or lose the workout, there's more in the competition day. And it comes with experience. And that's something we could talk about in another episode is like building athletes. It's actually a good idea. Building athletes to different time domains because that's what it is, right? Like that pace isn't necessarily a bad pace that you started out at. It's a terrible pace for a 25-minute time domain. Yeah. And there's ways we can build it in. I mean, this episode, we talk about like rep sets and different methods and how we implement them. But for future episodes, we talk about building in a motor and an engine for maybe three, seven, ten-minute workouts. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's probably a, a good place to leave it. We can get to some of those later on, you know, like, but, but kind of to summarize where I'm at now in life. Uh, with kind of the chef approach is for every athlete, I'm kind of building this functional reserve range. What I mean by that is if I'm building a tactical athlete ready to go to a certain selection, like for them, durability is speed for over a month long event. The ability to endure isn't just their, their speed per step and per mile durability is speed, right? For a, a functional fitness athlete, CrossFit athlete, what can they do on their worst day relative to their best day? And let's try and get somewhere optimal, not maximal, on competition day. We're trying to optimize it, right? Early on, I used to chase maximal effort on everything, maximal time, maximal stuff. It's about being optimized at the right time, right? So that that can be a thing that can be different for everybody. Another thing is like every movement is a skill. Squatting is a skill. People forget that. Squatting under fatigue is a skill, and it changes differently. And if I'm always fatigued in training, I'm not going to learn. And if I'm teaching every movement as a skill, it doesn't matter if it's 400 pounds on the bar or 40 pounds on the bar, relative to the athlete, if they are learning every session because they're not always dark, then we're building that skill. And it's just like someone with you know, a PhD in the English language, we're all speaking English right, right now, but they have such a higher level understanding of it that their baseline operating level is like way above my peak operating level. Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to build a reserve range. You know, I try and get all my athletes to understand we're trying to stress the body optimally, whether it's two a days, three a days, whatever it is, stress it optimally at the right time. So I'm not breaking them. I'm not getting ill or injured. We're not going to go into it, but it's coronavirus season right now. 
everything's going on. A lot of my athletes want to hammer down. I'm like, I'm going to, am I going to smash you right now? And coronavirus kills people with immune compromised yeah. systems. I can't do that. I can't look you in the eye right now and tell you that I think that's a good idea. Yeah. I don't want to kill you because you've got a month off of work in quarantine, literally kill you. And then that gets them into each workout has a purpose. Like, okay, today I am going to, you know, make you smash it a little bit, but knowing that the next two days, three days are light. And then quality of work is key. You know, yeah. if they're going to smash themselves, but it looks like they're, you know, having a seizure on the pull-up bar, AKA kipping, that's not good quality of work. Right. What am I doing to that person? I can't look them in the eye. And at the end of the day, I'm just trying to prevent them from being pulled in too many directions. So we talk about it a lot of times with a, a CrossFit athlete, we've got an ends to middle approach. So what I mean by that is if I'm, if I'm training a high level CrossFitter during certain times a year, like right now, all the sanctionals are canceled on competition day, they need to blend strength while conditioning this time of year. It's maybe strength and conditioning, right? So I may build max strength. I may build their aerobic base, those ends of the spectrum and around competition day, I'm bringing the spectrum together that ends to middle approach. And so that's where we're at, you know, with a lot of our um, individual athletes. But depending on the level, depending on what their goal is, we change all that. Cool. Sweet. I mean, I, other than that, I have like questions that I've gotten. If you want to get no, nah, we we don't or... we don't have time for this one. We'll bring it up uh, as always, folks. We appreciate you listening. This one share went a little bit longer. Friend. Yeah, share this. Help us out. We've got a lot of really good feedback. Really appreciate Taylor coming yeah, on today. I think for, uh, for having me, I appreciate the opportunity. I can already tell we're going to have a couple more of these with Taylor on. He's he's asking some really good questions. As always, you know, follow us on social media. Um, on Instagram, we're Evolution Athletics NC. On uh, Facebook, you just look Evolution Athletics US. Um, and then if you have any questions, just send it to Chris at EvolutionAthleticsNC.com. Do you want to follow some of the uh, progress of me as an athlete with yep, some of yep. this um, chef-style approach from Jeremy Hit him, Taylor. And Chris? You can uh, follow me at Sweat Angel app. There Sweat Angel on the, on the gram. Yep. He, uh, I'm on there. You find me. Yeah, <laughs> Jeremy's social media game is pretty weak most times, but, hey, he's focusing on, on what matters. Yeah, he's mean, focusing me, on what I'm, matters. I'm in that kind of sweet spot where I'm, I'm a coach but also a high-level athlete. Yeah. So he's he's got to trade that bandwidth for performance. So right now my bandwidth is on my athletes and me getting better. And so my social media is weak. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we really appreciate it and we will see you next time.